There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? Of course! What else would I be doing right now? I love going on these with you! Alright, let's give it a whirl! Okay, let's give it a whirl. And I just want to say hello, everybody. How are you? We're so glad you're here. Here at the beach today, we had a huge storm. The power went out. It was very exciting. Um, Quite the um, interesting situation. We had a Uranus transit today, which showed up in so much lightning and thunder. (laughs) Uh, yes, uh, the, all sorts of uh, weather going on uh, at the time of this recording and uh, probably still at the time of the publishing uh, of uh, this episode. Uh, we'd like to welcome all those uh, who are returning fans. Uh, we're so grateful for your support and uh, your devotion to the show. And for any of you, if this is your first episode of History in Retrograde, we'd like to welcome you. Uh, we've got quite the party going on over here. Uh, the way that we do things is that uh, in a moment I will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure to my mother. Uh, She will then input that data into the back computer and out will come the astrological birth chart where all the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that that person was born. She will then do her best to give a blind reading of this chart, telling us what she can about the person's personality, motivations, fortunes of this mystery history guest. Uh, I will then reveal to her uh, who this historical figure is, give a little background about the person, then we'll come together at the end and figure out how accurate the chart was at predicting what that person would do. Without any further ado, let us begin. Okay. This is a female. All right. Born on the 4th. Uh-huh. Of October. Okay. Mm-hmm. 1941. Oh, okay. Do we have a time? We unfortunately do not. No. What time do you want to use? I want to go with midnight. 
Oh, you do? Okay. All right. Let's see what happens with that. And where in the world? The United States. Okay. And town? New Orleans, Louisiana. Okay. All right. Let's see what we're looking at here. And I am um, using um, tropical, Western tropical astrology. And I am going to use Placidus houses. Okay. So let's see what we have here. So October 4th, 1941, New Orleans, and we're going with midnight. All right. So with midnight, uh, that's going to give this person a cancer ascendant. Does that seem right to you, Chandler? Possibly. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay, so we'll see what we have. We're going to start with a review of the planets. We have Sun at 10 degrees Libra, Moon at 28 degrees Pisces, Mercury at 6 degrees Scorpio, Venus at 22 degrees Scorpio, Mars at 18 degrees Aries, Jupiter at 21 degrees Gemini, Saturn at 28 degrees Taurus, Uranus at 0 degrees Gemini, Neptune at 27 degrees Virgo, Pluto at 5 degrees Leo, North Node at 22 degrees Virgo, and Chiron at 12 degrees Leo, with the Ascendant per midnight at 23 degrees Cancer. Since we do not have an accurate birth time on this person, we are working with this birth time. So let me just look really quick and see uh it looks like that we don't have any interceptions with this birth time so let's go through and see uh what we have here um per this chart using a birth time of midnight we have pluto conjunct chiron by degree, we have Pluto at 5 degrees Leo and Chiron at 12 degrees Leo. In this chart, because I'm using Placid as houses, it's falling in the first house. Uh, that should make this person, uh, if this birth time is even close, it would make them have some issues with their um, appearance. It would have a wounded healer effect on them and it would be very powerful. And it has to do with, uh, Leo things. So with that said, no matter where this would fall in their chart, uh, this wounded healer aspect in Leo is going to be very profound because it is conjunct Pluto. So there could be a lot of reasons for this person to have death and rebirth and death and rebirth in the way that they heal people and the way they get wounded, if that makes any sense. If it were in their first house, it would be an image 
death and rebirth of their image and also a powerful um a powerful change in how people see them i don't know if that makes any sense or not so first house cusp is cancer second house cusp is leo and they don't have anything in their second house, but having Leo on your second house cusp, your second house being your house of material things, valuables, values, um, and how you make your money, money and how you make your money, it would be having to do with Leo things. So either a leader or having to do with children or having to do with um, show business entertainment, entertaining, something along that line. Then we have the third house cusp is Virgo. And uh, we do not know that this is their birth time. I will continue to say that just because I want to make sure it's really clear. This person has North Node in Virgo. And that is conjunct by degree because their North Node in Virgo is at 22 degrees and their Neptune is at 27 degrees. Um, Virgo does not care for Neptune or Uranus to be in Virgo because those two planets are um, unpredictable and Virgos like things to be organized and precise. So this gives this person a very creative way of uh, addressing their direction. It gives them, because it's in Virgo, their North Node is in Virgo, it should be uh, something that has to do with communication or uh, medical healing and also pets. All the things that um, Virgo represents, a lot of these things. It is earthy but not the way a Taurus is earthy. And Capricorn is more about the business of it. Virgo is more about the way it's done, the way the work gets done. This person has sun in Libra at 10 degrees. Uh, that would make this person um, able to weigh and balance things back and forth. Um, Libra is the sign of the scales because it has to do with balance. They listen to both sides. And Libra is also really pretty. And um, uh, can be very feminine. And um, because it's ruled by Venus. Uh, curious, because if it is in their third house, this would also have to do with communication and it would be very important to them how they communicate, how they express themselves, if we're even close in the birth time. Fourth house cusp is Libra and they have Venus in Scorpio in their fourth house with this birth time. Having, oh, sorry about that. That's Mercury. Mercury in Scorpio. Mercury in Scorpio. Interesting. Um, Mercury in Scorpio. A very mysterious way of communication. Um, 
also could uh, communicate about um, occult things, secrets, mysteries, um, possibly uh, even uh, sexual things. But the way that they communicate is going to be intriguing. I think people that have Mercury and Scorpio communicate in a way that almost makes you lean into them. Um, and that is my perspective. So everyone might not think that, but that's how I feel. And then having Venus conjunct Mercury by sign, not by degree. Venus and Scorpio. This woman would have been... Uh, very comfortable with her sexuality and her beauty. Um, she should have been. But if she does have this Chiron and Pluto in the first house, it could mess with that a little bit. So it just depends. Um, if they, if this person does have Venus in the fifth house uh, in Scorpio, this would be a very dramatic way, very dramatic way of expressing the way they love and the things that they love, then um, the sixth house cusp is Sagittarius. Per this birth time, we don't have any planets in the sixth house, but uh, because it's a Placidus house system, we also have Capricorn there in the sixth house, which would give this person a um, if they're light side, their good side, it would make them very ambitious, very ambitious about their work. And then, uh, the seventh house cusp is Capricorn, but it changes to Aquarius here. So, uh, uh um, there is room in this for, uh, very, like a combination if this were the birth time of loyalty, but also uh, a person who needs someone who's really intellectual. Um, eighth house cusp is Aquarius per this birth time. There's nothing in the eighth house, but having Aquarius on the eighth house would give this person possibly a humanitarian legacy. Um open-mindedness where it comes to uh, the occult, um, partner's money, partner's finances, legacy, inheritance, um, all of those things. Then uh, we have on for this a ninth house cusp of Pisces and this person's moon is in Pisces. So Moon and Pisces is very dreamy, very emotional, very connected to the emotions, uh, creative with the emotions, possibly psychic, possibly um, having abilities that they could tap into. Mars and Aries is going to be very uh, intense, especially with this person having Pluto and Chiron in Leo and this Mars and Aries trining that. 
Mm, this is going to be a real backbone for this person, this Mars and Aries. This person could have a fiery temper. Doesn't matter what house it's in. Uh, Mars and Aries is going to be a very passionate woman. Um, fearless. Uh, can also kind of have that warrior quality to her that she would protect other people. Am I even close on any of this? Oh, yeah. Oh, I am? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, then 11th house cusp is Taurus. And also, I just want to say, if we're even close on the spare time, uh, having um, uh, Mars and Aries and having Aries on your midhaven is going to make you very warrior-like about your career. Uh, very... Uh, um, like, like, um, how can I say? Like, she just rides into it with her, with her weapons and, and takes over. Then 11th house, uh, in this, we have Saturn at 28 degrees, Taurus, and Uranus at zero degrees, Gemini. And Jupiter at 21 degrees, Gemini. Uranus at zero degrees in any sign is going to be very intense. Um, very, um, like, um, I want to say like moments of genius, like, uh, because it's in Gemini. So, Uranus is already surprise situations and things out of the blue, but at zero degrees, that's going to make it huge. And it's Gemini, so it's communication. So it's some sort of communication. And she has Jupiter there as well, which is also like huge communication, like um, just benevolent where the communication is concerned. Uh, very capable of literally uh, talking her way in and out of anything. Um, do you have any questions? What do you think she'd do for a living? Well, it's hard to say because we don't know for sure what time she was born. But if we just look at the planets, um, something that has to do with communications, I think, whether... Whether she is um, communicating with her Mercury in Scorpio, uh, or she is communicating with her North Node in Virgo and her Neptune in Virgo, making this um, uh, like an author. Uh, she does not have planets. Well, she has Saturn in Taurus. And if this were correct, it would be in the 11th house, which could give her a voice. Um, I want to say she's probably in either writing, it has something to do with communication, but in this situation with the Pluto conjunct Chiron and Leo, uh, it could just be leadership, but it seems to me that she would be very creative. 
So maybe something that involves creativity, this moon in Pisces, this Neptune conjunct North node, even though it's in Virgo, I still think that's really creative. Um, so I'm going to go with that for now. How would religion affect her life? Again, I, I don't know for sure what her birth time is. If we look at this with moon in Pisces in the ninth house, I would, and Pisces on the ninth house cusp. Um, I don't know that it would be religion per se, but definitely spirituality. I don't know what, if she'd be totally into what? the dogma of it. You know what I mean? Like a specific religion. I don't know because I don't have the real house cusps. Who is she looking for in a partner? A manly man. She wants a man who is a man. She needs a man who is stronger than her. And women who have Mars and Aries are very strong. And it doesn't matter what house it's in. If they have Mars and Aries, they are going to be a force to be reckoned with. They are ambitious and they're not afraid to go for it. They are women who, who, um, Mars is, uh, Mars rules Aries. Okay. And Mars is your planet of, 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 of passion and ambition. It's the thing that gets you up and makes you move walking towards what you want, you know, and to have it in its home sign of Aries for a woman, it's very masculine. It's a masculine way of approaching what they want to do. They can be considered overwhelming in, in their lack of fear in how they go after something. What is her relationship with her mother? Well, she has moon in Pisces. So it's possible she had a really good relationship with her mother or her mother was creative. Now, the dark side of that, when you have Pisces, Capricorn, planets, um, is the addiction. There could be addiction there. But having moon in Pisces does not make your mother... It actually makes your mother really creative. What is her relationship to work? Again, I, I don't know what for sure her sixth house cusp is, but I can look at her north node, which is in Virgo, which would make her very work oriented if she's following her north node, because if she went to her south node, it would be very uh, creative and she wouldn't be so detailed about everything. But if she is following her north node, which is what we do, that's why we you know, come into this life that we're in at the time. It, I would imagine she was very um, detailed about her work. And her Pluto is in Leo. It is conjunct Chiron. So there's something about how she wields her power, how she does it, because it's Chiron, which is wounded healer, and then conjunct Pluto, which is power and death and rebirth, and then her Mars and Aries, um, I would assume she was very ambitious and, and, and talky. There was talking, 
uh, communication. How would she process grief? Mm, Moon in Pisces is going to go down. It's going to go way down into the dark, dark fish. Pisces is dark fish, light fish. Gemini is the twins. These two signs have two sides to them. Uh, when a Pisces is feeling the darkness, I would assume that they would let it consume them completely and totally consume them. This is not a person who, a people who have moon in Pisces, moon in Cancer, you know, moon in a water sign in general is going to sink all the way to the bottom of the lake and just be in that pain until they're ready to push off the bottom and, and try to come back up again. How would she handle criticism? She might, she might hit them. I don't know. She, she might hit them, but this, if this is right, and this Leo is in her first house with this um, Pluto conjunct Chiron, and her <laughs> Mercury and Scorpio, hmm. you know, I really don't know that this woman is going to accept it, as if like. Like, really? I'm sorry. Who are you? Who are you that you would even imagine that you would have any concept of what I'm doing in order for you to criticize me? How would she feel about conformity? I don't think she's very much about conformity. I mean, I know she's got this Virgo North node, but it is conjunct by degree, 22 degrees and 27 degrees Neptune. Um, and knowing that she was born in 1941 and that, you know, that whole hippie era, I don't know if this woman's about conformity. I think she got that free love thing going on. Do you have any other final first impressions? I think this woman would be incredibly creative and um, teetering on brilliance, if not being brilliant. Because the really the only thing here that she has that can ground her is this Saturn in Taurus and this North Node in Virgo, but it's conjunct Neptune. So I see her as this fiery, fire and water, free spirit. You know, she's, I don't know, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I think that she uh, probably did whatever she wanted and people loved it. And how would you feel about her? I think I would like her. I think that she's conflicted. I think if I get into the squares and the oppositions and the, and all of that kind of stuff, cause she's got like, she has this North node and Neptune. See, this is 22 degrees and 27 opposing her moon. 
So her mind is opposing her emotions. Her passion is overwhelming. Her steadfastness is amazing. Her ability to come up with ideas and thoughts and communications is uh, brilliant. Zero degrees Uranus and Gemini. Um, and this dramatic way about her, you know, and her being just beautiful. So I think, I think I would like her a lot if all of this is the light side, you know, because if we turn and go, all of this is dark, then she could be a really intense force to be reckoned with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because we'd have narcissism, we'd have condescension, we'd have who knows what this Scorpio would turn into. <laughs> it would all be based in toxic emotions and addictions and stubborn, you know, my way or the highway and ego. So I'm hoping it's all the beautiful stuff. Well, at this point, I think we're ready for a summary of our findings. Okay. First thing you said is that there might be some issues with her appearance. Mm -hmm. um, she would have powerful wounds to overcome. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a powerful connection to death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. A powerful change in how people see her. Mm -hmm. uh, she has a creative way of addressing her direction. Mm -hmm. uh, her direction is connected to communication, possibly uh, medicine and pets as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Uh, she would be able to weigh things out, balance things. Uh, she'd be very pretty and feminine. Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, could uh, communicate uh, and express themselves. Communication and expressing themselves is very important to her. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a mysterious way of communication, possibly communicating about occult things, mm -hmm. uh, even sexual things. Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, could communicate uh, with intrigue. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a woman who was comfortable with her sexuality and her beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, she could be very dramatic, a very dramatic way of expressing her love. Mm -hmm. uh, she would be very ambitious about her work. Uh, there is a combination of loyalty. Uh, so she's very loyal to her partners, wants loyalty from her partners, uh, but needs someone who's very intellectual in her life. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a legacy with humanitarianism. Uh, she would be open-minded uh, in regards to the occult mm -hmm. and secret things. Uh, she would be very dreamy and emotional, and uh, there's creativity with her emotions. She might have psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, she would have a fiery temper. Uh, she uh, is passionate, fearless, a warrior, protective. Uh, she would be uh, a warrior uh, in her career. Uh, there are moments of intense genius uh, and connected to communication, mm -hmm. huge communication, benevolent communication. Uh, she could talk her way in and out of anything. Uh, she uh, is... Uh, her, her, her living would be made through communication. Uh, she could be an author. She could be a writer. Mm -hmm. She would be very creative. Uh, she, in regards to religion, would not be so much into the dogma of religion, but could be very spiritual. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, she would want a manly man uh, as a partner, uh, someone who was stronger than her. Uh, she is ambitious, uh, maybe even an overwhelming amount of ambition uh, and an overwhelming lack of fear in her mm-hmm. career. Uh Possibly she would have a good relationship with her mother, but there might be um, something connected with the mother and addiction, um, but also the mother being very creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would be very work-oriented and very detailed. Uh, she uh, would be able to talk a lot. Um, processing grief through darkness as she would go down, Mm -hmm. let the grief consume her. Mm -hmm. She would sink to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Uh, When uh, facing criticism, she might hit back, but she also just wouldn't accept the criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, She would not be a conformist. (laughs) Uh, She is incredibly creative, teetering on brilliance, Mm -hmm. fire and water, a free spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did whatever she wanted and the people loved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would like her a Mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is conflicted. Uh, Her Mm -hmm. mind opposes her emotions. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are creative new ideas that are being brought out in a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything that I've left out? No, I think I think that's it. I, I hope I know who this is. Are you ready to find out whose chart you've been looking at? Yes. Do you have any ideas on who this chart is? No, might be? I have no idea. This is the astrological birth chart of Anne Rice. <gasps> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. This makes a lot of sense. And I, I, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) okay. Yes. Please tell me all about Anne Rice. I don't know how you landed here, but this is awesome. Uh, so... For those of you who may not be aware, Anne Rice uh, is uh, one of the most uh, highly uh, uh, grossing authors uh, of the latter part of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. Um, most known for uh, her first book, uh, Interview with a Vampire, Mm -hmm. uh, which came out in 1976, um, and then several other uh, books about vampires and witches throughout uh, the 70s and 80s and 90s, Mm -hmm. Um, and really... uh, representative of a whole movement uh, and uh, talking about uh, the occult and talking about vampires. And uh, she is a a person who's very much tied to uh, the city that she was born in, uh, New Orleans. She uh, loved New Orleans and uh, a lot of her stories were set there. Uh, So, uh, and just uh, uh, one of Again, one of the most uh, uh, interesting uh, female writers uh, of uh, the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, Anne Rice was born uh, in October of 1941 uh, to Howard and Catherine O'Brien. She was named after her father. Uh, So she uh, was born and given the name Howard Mm -hmm. Allen Mm -hmm. O'Brien. 
Howard was a postal executive uh, in 1941, and then uh, he would end up going into the Navy during World War II, and so was away from the house. And so uh, her mother was really in charge of uh, raising the family kind of on her own uh, mm-hmm. for those uh, three years uh, that he was in the service. Uh, Catherine was a very creative uh, and smart uh, woman uh, and uh, really led her life in a bohemian way. Um, let the children paint and draw on the walls. Um, okay. Uh, do whatever uh, the neighbors would complain about uh, Anne and her sister um, uh, being naked in the backyard. Okay. Um, just whatever goes. Uh, children don't need to be scolded. Uh, freeform environment. <laughs> but... She um, balanced this with a devout uh, Catholic uh, upbringing. Mm. Uh, So uh, the O'Brien family were not weekly mass goers. They were daily mass goers. Wow. Um, And uh, the Catholic Church and the dogma associated with the church was integral to uh, life. Um, they would go to Catholic schools, and that was a very uh, important part of uh, Anne's uh, understanding of the world was through this uh, very rigid, uh, dogmatic Catholic lens. Um, but at the same time, having this free-form, creative lifestyle at home, uh, very uh, open-minded, uh, so uh, her sister Alice, uh, they uh, could be uh, seen running amok uh, throughout the neighborhood. Um, and then uh, the father, Howard, he got back from the service and wasn't really expecting this to be the way that Catherine is going to uh, raise up uh, the children. Um, <laughs> but And kind of wanted to bring some more uh, structure into the household, but kind of let everything happened the way uh, that it was already going. And so they had this very bohemian lifestyle, very creative and encouraged into music and singing and dancing and uh, all the arts. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, On the, uh, uh, she was very concerned about her name. It was very hard to live life with being a girl named Howard. (laughs) Um, And so on the first day of first grade, uh, the teacher asked her what her name was, uh, and she replied, Anne. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she decided right then on that spot that she would be Anne for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she went uh, by Anne Mm -hmm. O'Brien. And... uh, then and she growing up, she absolutely loved the city that she was uh, in, uh, New Orleans. Uh, she talks about it as New Orleans, especially at that time, was like its own country. Um, it had a distinct culture that was almost um, old world European meeting Caribbean, um, and was distinctly apart from the United States. Growing up in the 40s and 50s, whatever you got of American culture through the radio or television um, didn't look anything like what New Orleans looked like. Mm -hmm. So she she looked at America almost from the perspective of an outsider, as a perspective of a European or or someone in a third world country would. Um, And so really gave her a a unique... um, viewpoint uh, on American culture. As she gets into um, grade school uh, and uh, into middle school, um, 
it, it is becoming more and more of a problem regarding her mother and alcoholism. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, her mother would go on drinking binges mm-hmm. that would last uh, weeks at a time. Uh, yeah. And uh, growing up, she would um, tell her friends uh, that her mother was very sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her friends remember how anxious she would be leaving school to go back mm-hmm. home because she never knew what she would find when she got back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was overwhelming for Howard. And Howard didn't know any way of helping or processing this so he just kept working Mm -hmm. he would take two three four jobs Mm -hmm. so that he wasn't ever at home so that he could not deal with any of this and uh, so that led uh, to the children kind of raising themselves because Mm -hmm. their mother would be locked away in the bedroom drinking herself um, into a stupor Mm -hmm. and their father would be gone working Mm -hmm. and whenever the father would come back uh, he would uh, take Anne on on long walks throughout the city. Uh, she remembers um, the, the neighborhood, the Irish Channel that she grew up in very fondly and looking at all the architecture. And that was another way that she really got tied into the culture uh, of New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, was through these long walks with her father. Um, uh, so uh, by the time she was 15 years old, her, her mother uh, had died. Uh, she drank herself um to death um and uh the father howard um he remarried uh and in fact used anne as uh, as as his way of communicating and and courting the her future stepmother uh one of the stories goes that um he sent anne to uh the home of one of her teachers mm-hmm. uh, with a note uh, that said, uh, if you will let me take you to dinner, uh, wear this pin to school tomorrow. <laughs> uh, like, this is a grown man. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she did that. And the woman did wear the pin. And then uh, the two uh, eventually got married. A woman's name with, was um, Dorothy Van uh, Bever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Howard, once he got remarried, um, decided to move away from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in 1957, uh, they uh, moved to Texas. Uh, they uh, moved to Richardson, Texas, a oh. suburb of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And sh- this was like living on another planet uh, to yeah. go from uh, New Orleans to go to a suburb, a 1950s suburb of Dallas, Um a completely different culture, completely different people, food, music, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, suburbia. There, there were very few trees. She was used to New Orleans with Spanish moss on the trees. So, mm-hmm. um, very different. And she did not like it. Um, and once again, uh, the first day of high school, uh, or this, the first day of this new school, she was already a senior by this point when she transferred. Ooh. Um, she's in the first class. She's in journalism and she kind of, goes slinks towards the back of the class and as she's coming in she sees uh this young boy uh in the front of the class and uh he had a a baby face mm-hmm. is how she described it and um she she saw him and then went to the back of the class and the boy stood up and left the desk and sat next to her and uh he said uh that uh i i i i wanted to uh, sit here. I think I'm going to sit here now. Okay. And, and uh, 
he describes her as being a girl who had more vitality in just the few seconds that he had seen her, uh, more vitality than any other woman in the world. Mm. Uh, and that man's name was Stan Rice. Mm-hmm. Um, they instantly fell in love. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Anne uh, was uh, courted by many young men. Uh, she was very pretty. And mm-hmm. ha- again, everyone saw this vitality and uniqueness about her. Um uh, but kept coming back to Stan. Stan was uh, this, uh, he was already the uh, editor of the school newspaper. He was uh, going to uh, continue into writing. And um, uh, the, he was a year younger than her. Um, but uh, really, uh, she kept thinking about him all the time. Uh, I did skip over one thing that I think is very important Uh when she was growing up in New Orleans, by the time she was 12 years old, she had written her first novel. Wow. Uh, and she was submitting works to publishers and never got any of them published. Um, but in grade school, she was writing uh, and already writing uh, novels and short stories to try and get published. Uh, so uh, one of the other stories that comes from Stan and Anne's early courtship is that Anne was a devout Catholic, daily mass, um, and her mother told her that kissing was a mortal sin. Wow. That if she kissed a boy, um, she would go to hell. Uh, and she was, as a teenager, still um, afraid of all of this. And uh, Stan, I watched one of these interviews with Stan, and Stan goes, well, by the time I was... 16 years old, I had done a lot more than kissing. I was like, Stan, you dirty dog. <laughs> uh, but uh, it took quite a while for him to try and convince her that um, kissing would not send her to hell. Uh, she ends up graduating from Richardson High School, and she goes to Texas Women's University. Um, and th- really, she didn't even know what to focus on. She wanted to learn everything in the university. She wanted to take every major. Uh, and uh, this uh, compulsiveness to work, even before school had completely started, mm-hmm. she could be seen in the library with a typewriter, uh, uh, hammering at the keys, uh, trying to get thoughts onto a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her mind starts getting to be opened up, and she uh, uh, starts studying philosophy and religion. And it's at this time that she decides to leave the Catholic Church. She does not uh, any longer believe in in the dogma um, going along uh, with the church, even though a lot of what she learned growing up would affect her for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. Um, But she uh, doesn't uh, go to church anymore. Uh, But she's not happy. She's not happy in Texas, and she's not happy at this university. And uh, she's also, on top of all the classes that she's taking, She's also working to try and support herself through going through college. Mm -hmm. And it all gets to be too much. And uh, before she even starts her second year, she decides to drop out. And uh, she hears from friends uh, about San Francisco and about how easy it is to get a job there. And it's more open-minded there. And uh, so she decides uh, to go. And she goes to San Francisco. She borrows $50 from her sister Mm -hmm. and gets on a bus and Mm -hmm. goes uh, to San Francisco. 
Okay. And this is San Francisco in 1960 and 61. Uh-huh. It's not yet. We're mm-hmm. not at Hate and Ashbury yet. That's no. where they're living. She lives in Hate and Ashbury. Uh-huh. Um, but it's the beginning of all of it. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, uh, it's still much more open-minded um, than Richardson. Texas was mm-hmm. uh, in uh, 1960. And uh, she starts working jobs and she becomes fully independent and really starts growing intellectually. Um, and after a year, uh, she decides to come back to Texas and be with the family, and she reconnects with Stan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan uh, was now uh, getting ready to graduate from high school at that point. And once they start seeing each other then, uh, Anne goes back to California, but they start writing letters to each other and corresponding mm-hmm. uh, over the next few weeks and months. And it's not just little notes. Um, she is sending 11 legal pa- uh, legal pages <laughs> um, written front and back mm-hmm. um, letters uh, about her life, about how much she misses him. And he's writing the same amount to her. And uh, they just start uh, uh, this courtship all over again. And, and neither of them can find anyone like the other. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, following this summer of uh, written uh, going back and forth, um, at the age of 18 years old, Stan writes a letter uh, sends its special delivery to San Francisco, uh, proposing marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and, okay. And uh, she is just 19. Mm-hmm. And uh, she comes back to uh, Denton, Texas in October of uh, 1962. Uh, they get married. And uh, the the mother-in-law, uh, Stan Rice's mom, uh, talks about that they, pick, they load up this um, pickup truck. To, they're all going to go to – or the – the the rices now are going to move to San Francisco together, okay. and that they they look like the grapes of wrath, oh, uh, no. just loading everything that they have into this pickup truck to move out uh, to San Francisco, uh-huh. uh, and they go to San Francisco State University. They're living in Hayton Ashbury in uh, the mid sixties. They're seeing all the stuff that's going on uh-huh. uh, there, and as intellectuals and as creative people, they're uh, uh, fitting in uh, much more than they were back in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, both graduate uh, in 1964 and Stan is becoming a hit in the literary scene in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a poet and uh, a lot of his uh, poems are getting a lot of traction in the community and uh, he's really seen as the star and she's seen as Stan's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's the homemaker and she really lives up to that role she loves taking care of him and uh, uh and and being a wife uh and in 1966 they decide to have a child and uh, almost immediately after they make that decision they uh, get pregnant mm-hmm. and um uh, they give birth to a baby girl uh, named Michelle mm-hmm. uh who they would call Mouse uh for uh, uh and uh, so that was her nickname and uh this was the happiest time in Anne's life. She was a wife and a mother and she was uh, taking care of everyone and she had uh, this beautiful baby girl and really uh, enjoyed being a a mother. Uh, And she uh, occasionally wrote. She was still going to grad classes and she was still trying to figure out how to 
pursue what she wanted to do intellectually, um, but a lot of this other stuff um, got in the way of her intellectual pursuit. So she would write things and then just kind of store them away for a while uh, while she tried to get a... Um, a graduate degree in creative writing, and uh, she kind of stopped taking classes after a while. And while she's just occasionally uh, doing these stories, uh, she writes a story about uh, vampires. Mm -hmm. And she kind of gets the ideas onto the page, and then she kind of puts it into a drawer, and she forgets about it for a while. Um, uh, and just she's not really focused uh, on all of this. Mm -hmm. In 1970, uh, Anne had a dream, and in that dream, uh, she dreamt that there was something wrong with her daughter uh, and that her mm. blood was sick. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, a few weeks later, uh, Michelle uh, was playing outside, and she comes back in, and she just she says, Mom, I'm too tired. Mm. Uh, I can't uh, play anymore. I'm going to go to sleep. Mm. And She's five years old, mm -hmm. uh, so there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And they take her to uh, the doctor, and she is diagnosed uh, with leukemia. Mm -hmm. And uh, that it is a type of leukemia that it's very unlikely that she's going to survive. Um, and the two of them have completely different ways of how they're going to handle this. Mm -hmm. Stan recognizes the short amount of time that they have and wants to make mouse's life as comfortable as possible yes. um Anne wants to fight this she yeah. wants to she feels like she let her mother down yeah. and uh, wasn't able to fight and win that battle for her mm -hmm. so she's going to do everything she can uh, for michelle so she called every hospital she saw every doctor mm -hmm. and everyone gave her the same information they mm -hmm. start chemotherapy um drugs and things to try and fight this mm -hmm. um and uh it, it's it, it's not going well mm -hmm. um uh and and they the way that both of them cope with all of this is uh, through alcohol oh, um no. they are drinking excessively uh, oh, throughout no. this they talk about that they would not go on hospital visits without at least a six pack of beer Ugh. and two bottles of wine oh, no. um anything to try and cut loose from uh, uh, this horrible trauma that they're going through. Mm. Um, she, it, she, what's amazing about this is that Anne does finish her, her masters. She gets a masters in, uh, in creative writing while she's fighting her daughter's leukemia. Uh, and that happens in 1972. Uh, and then, uh, Stan, he, his career's still going well too, and he gets a, a $5,000 grant, uh, for, uh, his work that he's doing. He's now a professor at San Francisco State University. And he, uh, they decide to take some of that $5,000 and they take, uh, Michelle to Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Michelle ends up passing away a few weeks later, mm. uh, just before uh, her sixth birthday. Uh, and this was heart-wrenching. Yeah. Uh, Anne went into a, a complete 
depression mm-hmm. um, and coping with a, a, a tremendous amount of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, all she'd want to do is sit on a porch and drink beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at a certain point, they, they would get into huge fights with each other. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people th- looking at it would think, well, these people can't stay together mm-hmm. for much longer. Um, and they would just get into these bitter fights. And eventually, uh, Anne moves to be with Stan's parents in Texas for a little bit. And then she comes back and they patch things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that Stan does is says she's been working all of these um part-time jobs mm-hmm. and stan says I- i'm a professor at a university i'm not being paid a whole lot but i'm you're not bringing a whole lot in why don't you just quit your job mm-hmm. and focus on your writing mm-hmm. and he would provide for her mm-hmm. and uh she does that and she picks up this story that she put in a drawer mm-hmm. years ago about the vampires and she just starts working furiously on this. Uh, she would work day and night. She would work so long into the day, into the night that she'd leave all the lights on. Stan had to learn how to sleep with all the lights on <laughs> uh, because that's where the typewriter was. And she would just be hammering at mm-hmm. the typewriter uh, to write the story. Day and night, she works on all of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, in January of 1974... Um, after five weeks of working, uh, she produced a 338-page manuscript that was Interview with the Vampire. Wow. And as soon as she was done with it, she handed it to Stan, and Stan read it uh, in one sitting, uh-huh. all 338 pages into the afternoon. Uh-huh. And, and and was like, yes, this is, the, this is your first book. Mm-hmm. And it took a while, uh, sending it to different publications, uh, different publishing houses. And in October of 1974, uh, she finally gets an offer for it, uh, for $12,000. Wow. Uh, and then, uh, she gets, uh, movie rights sold to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the paperback rights, uh, would be over $700,000. Mm-hmm. And it was finally published in May of 1976. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it didn't do very well on hardcover, mm-hmm. um, but the paperback really sold, mm-hmm. and uh, it just took the nation by storm. Uh, and uh, the, she became a, a household name from uh, from this book. Uh, and I don't know. I'm I'm giving you all this information. Uh, I have not read any of her books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not even seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just from what I can gather about it uh, from doing the research, um, it's very interesting that she writes this book about vampires after her daughter has died from a blood disease. Yeah. Um, she also uh, her her during that first sitting that um, Stan read the book, um, there's a, a little girl yes. who gets turned into a vampire. Yes. And uh, the she dies. Uh, and uh, he pointed this out, that it's a little girl with golden hair, just like Michelle, uh, who was supposed to be this immortal Mm -hmm. who dies, Mm -hmm. and she got furious, Mm -hmm. and was furious that, no, that has nothing to do with Michelle. A a complete, uh, 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 just uh, anger at Mm -hmm. the even idea that this would be Michelle that she's talking about here. Um. But uh, uh, very interesting how that 
tied into that part in her life and produced, and she worked through it through this book. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1978, uh, she uh, gets pregnant again, and they have a boy named Christopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next year, both of them decide to quit drinking. Uh, mm. And so uh, they they were uh, sober uh, for the rest of their lives. Um, there's still some strain on the marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were uh, they argued a lot with each other, but and other people would look at it as seeing a marriage falling apart. But that was just kind of how they worked through emotions and worked through things together. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the stories that I, I was uh, listening to, um, they went and saw a movie and. Uh, that she saw the movie and she absolutely loved the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and it was all that jazz. Uh, oh. So, friend of friend of the show, Bob Fosse, yeah. um, his his movie uh-huh. is sort of autobiographical. She loved it, thought it was an artistic uh, masterpiece, mm-hmm. and really captured creativity and loved it. And he absolutely hated it. <laughs> he could not stand the movie. And at one point, he says, "I don't think I want to know anyone who likes this." movie Mm. Uh, so it shows you the yin and yang of the couple but Mm -hmm. how they were still able to work through things together and how they needed uh, both of each other um she continues to write and she doesn't have the huge success uh, that interview with the vampire was and uh honestly uh, going through so i i never knew that she wrote these historical fiction books Mm -hmm. so uh, Mm -hmm. she wrote uh, a book of and and all of the writing uh, connects her back to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. She uses New Orleans as the setting for a lot of these books as a way to transport herself because she hates San Francisco so much mm-hmm. uh, and uh, how much she longs to be in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so one of the historical novels is about um, the uh, free people of color in New Orleans mm-hmm. um, and, and the uh, balls and the life that they had uh, in New Orleans. Another one was about uh, the Castorati, these uh, Italian boys who were castrated so that they could be um, falsetto for the rest of their life Mm. and were superstars throughout um, uh, uh, Europe. Mm. Uh, And uh, she did tremendous amounts of historical research uh, for um, putting uh, these books together. Um, She starts using uh, three different pen names. So she has Anne Rice as her name, uh, but she wants to be able to um, uh, make uh, things in a different voice. And so uh, she considers her natural voice to be something mu- like a-, a European, like an old 17th century European looking upon America today. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what this uh, upbringing in New Orleans uh, gave her this viewpoint. But there were other viewpoints and voices in her head and so another one uh, was distinctly American and was inspired by Ben Franklin and Mark Twain and so she used uh, that pen name to write some of these books and she also um, writes uh, erotica and pornography mm-hmm. and uh, she does that in a in a different voice as mm-hmm. well uh, and uh, I think it's very interesting to see going from this a strict dogmatic uh, Catholic upbringing to then by the time you get to the late seventies and eighties, writing uh, this uh, erotica and mm-hmm. pornography really shows the arc in her life. Um, and then, well, I'll get to it in a little bit, but kind of goes full circle at the end. Um, uh, and another point of contention uh, between her and Stan was that Stan 
wanted to live in California. Stan was a professor. He had a steady job there. You never know when your book is going to be a hit or a flop, but I'm a professor here. We can support the family. Um, in 1985, uh, she writes uh, The Vampire Lestat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where she kind of takes she, she Lestat was the character that stayed with her after the book and Lestat was the villain of Interview with the Vampire, but then starts to become the hero in the rest of the books, Mm -hmm. at least as I understand it Mm -hmm. from what I've seen other people uh, talk about. Uh, And that becomes a huge hit. Uh, And from the windfall of this and Queen of the Damned, Mm -hmm. she finally is making so much money that they don't need to worry about the job in San Francisco, and she's finally able to move back to her home in New Orleans Mm -hmm. and uh, becomes this icon of New Orleans. There are all these videos and news stories of book signings that happen in New Orleans and as cultural events that she would arrive in a hearse and she would be in a coffin and then they would open the coffin and she would come out to give these book signings because by the time you get into the 80s, it's now a whole different cultural movement going on. Right. You have goth going on. You have um, – and, and these books spoke out to – more than one audience. Uh, you had uh, housewives who were um, intrigued by uh, the sexual nature of uh, of some of these books. You have uh, this had a huge hit in the uh, lesbian and gay community mm-hmm. um, because um, she's talking about outsiders. Uh, uh, vampires are a symbol of being an outsider, of being someone who's shunned from society, who has to go into the shadows. Um, there's also something. Uh, of course very uh, sexual and seductive about the vampire so that hit with that community and all these and then you have she had she would find middle-aged men who loved all the history research that she did for these books Mm -hmm. so it it crossed all of these different uh, cultures and she really meant it to do that she talks about how she really writes these books for the people Mm -hmm. um, and she considered herself a populist um, and the communities the writing communities in San Francisco and the New York literary communities uh, did not like this. They um, did not like her work and uh, critiqued her uh, strongly mm-hmm. for her work. And uh, she, uh, I saw one of these uh, uh, interviews that she did uh, and she goes, yeah, well, the New York Times doesn't like my book uh, because it's not about a failed marriage in Connecticut, <laughs> uh, which is uh, all that they would want to appreciate uh-huh. um, but that that these books are not meant uh, for them mm-hmm. they're meant for this grand section of people mm-hmm. uh i one thing that really hit me doing this research is she talks about the revolution it is to have a computer and she's one of these first authors who has a personal computer in yes. the home and she talks about how uh uh it's it's so much faster for her to get her ideas because she no longer has to deal with the mechanical problems uh, of the typewriter and how she would have to stop her thought to load a new page Mm -hmm. into the typewriter. Mm -hmm. She's now able to get rid of all of those problems with her computer Mm -hmm. and is ordered to, uh, and and she's able to just speed all these notes and everything that's in her. She said, I, I don't even know if this, but, possible a thousand words a minute um she was just fast she she could type uh, uh reams uh, and now she doesn't have to deal with the paper anymore uh so i i never 
as someone in a generation who never had to deal with the mechanics <laughs> of a typewriter, never realized, oh, that would be something to stop your thought so that you could load a new piece of paper in mm-hmm. there. Um, and how that completely revolutionized. And it also makes me think of, uh, I, I would think of Woody Allen always talked about how he never used a computer, mm-hmm. that he loved the typewriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that those are the two personalities of, of these two people. He's very slow and, and taking his time with everything and he stammers through everything. So he might like having that, uh, needing that mechanical aspect in his life. Uh, whereas, uh, you have, uh, uh, Anne Rice, who's just trying to get all of these ideas in her head, uh, onto uh, the screen as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, the 90s, uh, the, her, her, uh, her first book was finally made into a movie, mm-hmm. um, Interview with the Vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a project that had been put around Hollywood for nearly 20 years. Uh, and she really wanted uh, Rudger Hauer to be Lestat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they cast Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And she uh, did not like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, she thought Tom Cruise was too all-American. And she uh, wrote letters into the uh, editorials talking about she didn't want Tom Cruise to play her vampire. Um, but then once the movie came out, she actually really enjoyed his performance mm-hmm. and uh, encouraged everyone to see it. And Interview with the Vampire, I think, was like the second second highest grossing movie of that year. Mm-hmm. Um, she continues to write uh, a, a lot of these books about the occult, uh, as well as her historical uh, fiction novels, uh, Queen of the Damned, uh, The Witching Hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sets in her own home in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, because she's now finally back in New Orleans and she loves being there so much and it, it just flows through her. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, by the time you get to the 2000s and 2002, I believe, uh, Stan, uh, he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she uh, she starts a, a new aspect in her, her career, uh, writing uh, religious novels. So mm-hmm. she kind of goes back to uh, her upbringing to uh, talk about uh, – she writes a book about uh, um, – Jesus, a young Jesus Christ being a, a Jewish family living in uh, uh, Jerusalem in uh, that time period. Uh, and so writes a historical fiction book about that. And he gets to be known as this last leg of her career as also being this religious and Christian writer. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time uh, uh, of the 20. 20- uh, 10s, uh, she has a uh, wealth uh, of over 50 to 60 million dollars mm-hmm. um, and is one of the most uh, uh, best-selling authors uh, in the country. And um, Anne Rice uh, passed away uh, in uh, 2021, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and uh, just, uh, I, I, I kind of chose this um, for a number of reasons, one of which you never know what your uh, your, your parents' influence on you is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I was aware of Anne Rice from a very early age, uh, and that is because I remember taking a vacation to Disney World, and we went through New Orleans, mm-hmm. and we stopped at her house and took a picture of her house. Mm-hmm. And to think of... This is not a celebrity. This is not an actress. This is not um, some entertainer mm-hmm. per se, but an author <laughs> uh, that we want to stop and take a picture of her house. And that always stuck in my mind of, well, who is this 
woman and mm-hmm. and uh she must have had a, a very profound impact on your life mm-hmm. uh for us to have um done that um and i remember seeing the books in the bedroom while while you were while i was growing up mm-hmm. and things so um i i i think that uh just a, a very fascinating uh, woman who led a, a very uh, interesting career. Absolutely. I'm so glad you chose Anne Rice Chandler. And your research for her history is amazing. There's so many things I didn't know. Uh, I knew um, about her son, Chris, but I didn't know about her daughter. Um, I hadn't, you know, as a fan, I didn't. I never had time with all the things that I was doing to, you know, research her life as an author. But the whole time that you were describing the situation with her daughter, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Because in the book, the little girl dies, but she becomes a vampire. And I haven't read them in decades, so I can't remember exactly um, how it happens. But she takes the character development of this child who stays in a child body, but matures the way an adult does. So um, the way she writes the characters and the way that I would read Anne Rice novels is I would know that I was going to read this novel and I would read the whole thing straight through um, with in between, you know, doing things, but I would try to do it over a weekend or a holiday weekend or whatever, where I was just going to read the whole novel. And that's pretty much how I read all of her novels. I would know that I was going to read it straight through. And I think that for my group of friends that were in the theater and were also very interested in metaphysics and astrology and tarot and runes and um, all of those things. Uh, Anne Rice books in our early 20s were comparable to The Hunger Games and... um, the uh what is the series Chandler that they made the 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 um it was a series of films about vampires twilight twilight yes so for us it was Anne Rice novels because when I discovered Anne Rice I believe there were at least two novels out I can't remember for sure but it seems like there were already um Interview with a Vampire and the Vampireless Dot. I'm not exactly sure about that, but I think so. And the, it was so amazing to read the books because of the way she explained everything so completely different from any horror films that we had seen up to that point, you know. And we were now coming into the whole slasher genre, which is completely different than horror but i mean looking at her chart and knowing that i mean look at this just this pluto in leo conjunct chiron in leo death 
healing through death and rebirth. Vampires, mm-hmm. you know, it's very dramatic. Everything she wrote was very dramatic. I mean, she had scenes, uh, and I'm sure she did research into it because, um, I didn't read all of her books. I haven't read all of her books. Uh, life got the best of me and I couldn't continue to read, but her standalone books, uh, The Feast of All Saints, Servant of the Bones, I read those. Um, I read all of the, um, uh, vampire series, Interview with a Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, The Queen of the Damned, The Tale of the Body Thief, Thief, uh, Mimnock the Devil, The Vampire Armand. And I think I read Merrick, but I can't remember. But this was all done mm, by the time you were just really little, you know? And uh-huh. so, but her, uh, her writing is, it was magical to me. And now that you're doing this, it's like, oh, I need to go get those other books and read those books. But, um, I mean, does this not make perfect sense? Yeah. Right? And we don't know her birth time. I think Midnight would be pretty witchy. (laughs) That's true. Is that why you chose it? That's very cool. That's very cool. But um, I also I saw her birth certificate and it does not have a time on there. And I just think maybe if someone's born in the middle of the night in 1941, uh they would fill this in later. And they didn't remember because it happened so early in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to something happening at seven or eight or nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So that kind of also led me to choose midnight over noon. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it that you did. And honestly, a lot of this stuff does make sense in these houses. I'm not sure that uh, we can find a time of birth for her anywhere. Because I'm going to say that I think her mother was not just an alcoholic. I think her mother was probably not okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and people, you know, when you have people who are functioning in the world, you don't really realize that they're not okay. They're not, this isn't just about being quirky. There is definitely something wrong, you know? And it sounds like, you know, for as much as her mother was trying uh, to love these children and, and, and give them this, you know, kind of freestyle life, uh, that she probably wasn't okay. Um, and there's just so much about this chart that you related, you know, for the things that she was interested in, you know, uh, because, um, Pisces does kind of represent religion, you know, but her having this Mercury in Scorpio communication about death and the occult and hidden things and secret things, right? And taboo things because it's Pluto, right? And then having this Venus in, um, Scorpio, uh, where she had the outlet for her erotica, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is, and then, you know, this stroke of genius as 
uh, a communicator, as a writer with Uranus at zero degrees Gemini, that is a new way, a new way of communicating, right? Which she did because although we have other books, there was nothing like this. There had been nothing like this before. Um, she sort of opened the door to a whole new style of writing, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it was amazing. And her work ethic, you know, this North yeah. Node in Virgo, just keep working, keep working in the creativity, you know, very, very interesting. Lovely. I don't know what what brought this into the season, Chandler. This doesn't have anything with you going to California or any of those things. So I'm a little curious about what 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 spurned this? What brought this to light? I was just thinking, uh, I don't know, the idea just came to me. Um, I, I actually had it as one of my alternative ideas, and then uh, I ended up not being able to find enough info on the person that I had planned for this episode. Wow. And uh, so I decided to put this together. Well, I think it's awesome. I think it's amazing. I love Anne Rice. I love her work. And now I'm inspired to go read more things that I never got a chance to read. So that's awesome, yeah. Chandler. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I hope the other people out there uh, who are listening, if you, uh, you haven't already, I'm sure that they're all on audiobooks and uh, 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 pick it up for yourself and, and uh, delve in into this world. Mm-hmm. Set, set aside time to read the whole novel at once. It's a lot of fun. It's quite the adventure. If you can read the whole thing straight through, it's amazing. Uh, I think on our scale of uh, right on the money to way out in outer space, this is uh, right on the money. This is uh, who Anne, who Howard uh, was. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that this happens so simply when I'm not even reading, you know, the squares or the, you know, I'm not reading any of the um, asteroids or any of those things. This is just, you know, really, really basic chart reading right here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Well, that uh, concludes this episode of History in Retrograde. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening. Uh, If you would like to support the show, uh, we have all the links to our social media accounts posted in our uh, show description. Uh, Also, uh, we have a link to our PayPal account. Every little bit helps us in making a better quality show, expanding our audience. Uh, We also uh, have a link to our YouTube channel. Uh, Please uh, go there and subscribe. Uh, we're posting every week, and uh, we're getting through our first season. So if there's uh, any of our uh, first uh, cadre of characters that you would like to uh, see for the first time or revisit, uh, no, uh, uh, everyone's favorite uh, Libyan dictator uh, has been uh, posted recently, uh, Mr. Muammar Gaddafi. <laughs> um Please go ahead and uh, take a look uh, at all of that. All of those subscriptions uh, help us in growing that channel. Uh, also, if you would like to be your very own Mystery History guest, we can make that happen. Uh, we have a link provided in the show description. Uh, email Chandler's Mom at historyandretrograde.com and uh, she uh, can get with you about more details on uh, how to get uh, your chart read, that chart of that special someone or that special four-legged someone. <laughs> Absolutely. I love working with you guys and i love hearing from you and i love listening to your um 
um, thoughts and um, considerations of the show whenever we're working together on your chart. And I want to make this really clear because I am doing this. I am giving away five minute readings. So at the time of this, when this is going to be released, I think I have 15 available still for the month of May. Five minute free reading, guys. All you have to do is go to www.historyinretrograde.com and follow the link to email me. And I would love to chat with you and set a time for your free five minute reading. And um, anything that I mean, you guys can really help a lot right now by just subscribing on the YouTube channel. So if you pop over to YouTube and you search history and retrograde and you subscribe to it, we are working really hard to see how fast we can get to a thousand subscribers. So that would help a lot. If you like the show, please do that. These things are easy to do and they're free. So um, we look forward to hearing from you and, um, you know, just providing as much content as we can. Uh, well, that pretty much wraps up things on the show. As always, in conclusion, uh, as long as your houses are in order and your stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything is going to be just fine. Mercury Retrograde uh, goes direct on the 14th, so things should be a little less confusing. And we just want you to know that we love you. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.